Hey, I'm Darren Steele, and this is Think Queerly, a thought leadership podcast to empower queer creators and change makers to discover, create, and evolve to make a difference for the betterment of all humanity. Now, today I'm having a three-way. No, I'm kidding. Um, but I have two guests <laughs> with me today, uh, Ken Popert and Jeffrey Yovanone. Um, I'd like to first introduce Ken. First of all, Ken, thank you so much for uh, agreeing to be on the show today. Well, I'm always have, happy to have an opportunity to uh, exercise the fragments of my memory, Darren. <laughs> <laughs> well, a little bit of a bio, biography as, as provided by you. You live in Toronto where I live and you were born in 1947. Uh, you began your lifelong career in gay activism as a graduate student at Cornell University in Ithaca, New York, USA in 1968. Uh, you returned to Toronto in 1973 and became a leading member of the Body Politic Collective, writing and editing for the widely influential Gay Liberation Journal. And you met your current long-term partner, Brian Mossop, at the city's 1974 Gay Pride March. Upon its demise in 1986, the uh, Body Politic Collective entrusted the future of its nonprofit enterprise to you which you led as president and executive director until your retirement in 2017. And the connection here is that you were my boss for about six or seven years directly when I worked right. for Pink Triangle Press between um, <clears throat> 1993 and 2004. And Jeffrey, thank you. You've been on the show a couple of times. Good to have you back. Excited to be here and for our conversation today. Wonderful. So a brief bio for those that don't know Jeff. Um, he's a queer historian and historic preservation planner from Buffalo, New York. And he's the co-founder of Gay Places, an initiative that documents LGBTQ historic sites in Western New York with Preservation Buffalo, Niagara. He's currently working on a master's degree in historic preservation planning at Cornell University in Ithaca, New York. And that's actually why the three of us are here. Mm -hmm. So Jeffrey, I'd like to hand uh, over to you now. Could you give us a, an explanation as to the research you're doing and why you came to me and said, could we have a discussion with Ken Popert? Yeah, yeah. this this all came about um, because last semester um, I took a course at, at Cornell called um, Making Public Queer History. It's uh, taught by Dr. Stephen Veter, who is the director of the Public History Initiative at Cornell. And as part of the course, um, we did a whole um, unit on Cornell's queer history. And we were <coughs> reading and looking at materials from um, the Human Sexuality Archive at Cornell, which is the second largest um, LGBTQ archive, uh, sexuality archive um, in the country. And as we were looking at some of those materials, we're reading things from Cornell student newspapers, newsletters, um, the name Ken Popert stood out to me. And I was like, why is that familiar to me? And so Darren, I texted you and said, this might be a weird question, but was it you that told me about Ken Popert? And you said, yeah, he was my boss at, at Pink Triangle press. Um, so I, I thought this would uh, be an interesting conversation um, because of the intergenerational um, connections between us. Um, Ken and I, as Cornell students, um, Darren, you worked with Cornell or um, Ken at, uh, 
at Pink Triangle. Um, and then right, you have been an excellent mentor um, to me. So it, it's just really um, fascinating, I think, kind of finding out these unexpected connections and that, you know, I can also be doing that sort of um, research and taking a class like that at, at um, Cornell in part because some of the work that Ken did when he was a student and that's impacting what, what students at, at Cornell are doing 50 plus years later. Interesting. Yeah. And uh, I think what draw your attention to the name is that um, a little over a year ago, Jeffrey and I did an interview with the authors of Out North, uh, which looks at the archives um, uh, pulling together uh, pictures and slides and what's being held in the archives and looking at sort of it through a historical lens of uh, various periods. And of course, there's a lot of information there from uh, extra PTP in the body politic because um, that was something that came out of the body politic. And I think we might be, be touching a little bit of information uh, on that further on in, in some of our questions, but to get Ken involved here on the discussion, maybe I can start lobby the first uh, question here. Ken, is could you tell us about your background, how you ended up at Cornell, and then became involved in gay student activism at that time? Uh, right. Well, I should say it's a bit of a. Uh, I didn't grow up exactly in Toronto. I was born and grew up in Scarborough, which you know is sort of Toronto. It is now. Uh, so I was a suburban kid. And uh, uh, I first uh, began to think of myself as being different in some fashion quite early on. And in fact, I had a, uh, a sexual relationship with my boyfriend for about two years while I was in high school. So, but I wasn't out to anybody and I never actually thought of myself as being uh, gay, really. Uh, until uh, one day uh, he sat up in bed. Uh, we were taking advantage of a parental absence. And uh, he said, you're a homosexual. And uh, I thought, hmm, <laughs> didn't we both just? But anyway, so I mean, there's a lot packed into that. You start to think about it. There's the self-denial. There's the reproach, you know, the categorization and so forth. But anyway, so I did, you needed to know that for some background. So then I went to, uh, on to the U of T. I was interested in languages and ling linguistics, uh, but they did not have at that time a linguistics department. However, I was fortunate enough that in my fourth year, one of my professors nominated me for uh, a Woodrow Wilson uh, fellowship. And that in turn meant that I had to apply to three universities. And at the time, I had no plans actually become an academic. I just was not thinking about that at all. But this door suddenly opened up for me. So I applied to three, uh, U of T, of course, University of Alberta and Cornell. And of course, you know, Cornell threw huge amounts of money at me, <laughs> unlike the other two universities. And as crass as it seems, I ended up at Cornell because they had such a lavish scholarship uh, program. So that's what brought me to Cornell in 1968, fall of 1968. Now, again, if I, if I can allow it, be allowed to run on a bit here. Uh, I started thinking about what I was and who I was just around the time I was leaving uh, the U of, U of T. And because I'd gone away on a trip to hiking trip through northwestern South America with three friends, I had plenty of time to think about what I felt about them and so on. Uh, 
So to make a long story short, I went to a, uh, psych- a psychologist when I got to Cornell to, uh, to their student uh, mm-hmm. services there and told him I thought I was gay, but I didn't know what to think about or what to do or anything. And it was actually, God bless the man. He said, well, you know what? I have drug addicts waiting to see me. I have people who are completely gone. So you just go to this gay organization. This is not a psychological mm-hmm. problem. And he sent me to what was then called uh, the Student Homophile League, which, of course, I mean, it was not a hugely inviting name. It sounded kind of dull and also kind of slightly sinister. Uh, somehow. But, you know, I went to one of their meetings, and that's how I came out to my first group of uh, people and got involved in the organization and in activism. Amazing. I mean, and just a a note, um, the difference between funding of Canadian and American universities is like, there's just really no comparison. Um, I remember when I was considering doing my PhD before I left my master's, uh, two of my professors, one of my advisors said, we will not give you letters of recommendation to apply at a Canadian university. (laughs) And I was studying at Carleton University in Ottawa, but it was because there, for what I was going to be doing, German language and linguistics, it's like, you have to go to the States and you need to either go to one of these two or three universities and you won't have to pay a dime. Whereas in Canada, yeah. I might be suffering, <laughs> having to live in squalor just to get three hours. <laughs> All right. All right. I know it's a terrible, terrible way. It's a terrible thing to say, you know, but I saved enough money from my scholarships and fellowships to actually form part of the down payment for our first house. <laughs> so, wow. But yeah, you know, it's not the same now, even in the, in the United States though. I think it's a lot tougher for young people now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, Ken, what um, what program were you in at Cornell? Uh, well, uh, I was in the uh, majoring in linguistics, which was okay. centered on moral hall, if I remember correctly. But I had a minor, okay. a minor in anthropology. Okay. And what can you, um, you know, from your perspective, what was Cornell like at the time, and what do you think it was like for gay students? Oh, well, um, you know, it was not particularly encouraging environment for, well, neither was Ithaca for that matter, obviously, for gay people. Uh, There was really only one place to socialize, which was the inevitable gay bar. I think it was at the top of State Street, if I remember correctly, Maury's. But it was also sort of the bar for for other uh, excluded groups as well. For for a while, I think it was the black uh, bar as well as the the gay Uh bar. So that was the principal way that people went to socialize in uh, in uh, in Ithaca and at Cornell, and it's one of the things I think we were hoping to remedy a bit when we later on opened the, the Gay People's Center uh, because we wanted to give some place for people to meet where they didn't have to buy drinks or or whatever to justify their presence. Right, but that was about it. Other than house parties, which of course were very common. Uh, but that was the extent of the, the social life. Of course, a lot of people in Ithaca, they went away. One of the odd things about Ithaca is equidistant between New York, Montreal, and Toronto. And people would mm-hmm. often go away for a weekend. Believe it or not, they would drive five hours to have a weekend in usually New York, but also sometimes those other two cities, right? So, 
it was people used to describe it as centrally isolated. That was the phrase I, <laughs> I remember from people talking about how they felt living in Ithaca when they'd come from elsewhere. Yeah. I was just sort of interested in, um, you know, house parties today would be right. something entirely different in the sense, but it would have that probably would have had much more of an underground feel, I would imagine. Oh, yes, how, of course. how was that communicated? Like, and were there, mm-hmm. was there a different type of people at the house parties that may have either come to the bars or have come to the student center? Well, the disadvantage of house parties, especially in a small location like Ithaca, is you knew that you were going to know everyone already before you even got there, right? So as venues for, for sexual initiative, they were not very promising unless you were a new person. Uh, mm. So there is that uh, aspect of them. Uh, but as I say, they did at least allow you to, uh, you weren't on somebody else's property, really, the way you felt when you were in a in Maury's, where you were there because he allowed you to be there, right? And you weren't allowed to forget that, I think, in all sorts of ways, nor did you allow yourself to forget it. So so that in itself would be quite a, it was a, you know, a big difference just to be on territory that was not being shaped by someone who is not part of your community right mm-hmm. so uh-huh. I, oh, go ahead Jeffrey. go ahead um so i i want to talk a little bit more about mores but bef- before we get there if we could backtrack a little bit so you said you went to see a psychologist right. at cornell um who essentially sent you to the gay student organization. Can you tell us more about that? Like when you went to your first meeting and what that was like and how you started getting um, more involved with, with the group and how it, how it changed um, over your time there. Well, unfortunately I have to tell you, I don't remember uh, my first meeting (laughs) with the organization. In fact, most of, most of that is a foggy, uh, blank. And I, I feel badly for not being able to remember it, but I've been squeezing my brain for the last week and rereading the stuff that you sent, hoping it would shake something loose. But honestly, I don't remember anything about that, except I'm sure that's where, well, you know, I encountered uh, a couple of important uh, people, but whom, whom I remember. But I don't really remember much about the meetings of the organization. Now, I did become, as I recall, the editor of the newsletter for a while mm-hmm. and that's how i got involved in journalism really gay journalism but uh, sorry but i don't remember mm-hmm. anything about the organization's functioning mm-hmm. really who were the important people that you met that you just mentioned well let's see first of all there were three uh there was eventually not immediately a uh, stephanie stephanopoulos janice kelly and jane gallup was really a wonderful Uh, woman uh and bob roth of course who was the big mover and shaker of the organization and his uh boyfriend morris essam those are the people that i immediately uh remember and of course i know that gerald moldenhauer must have been floating around there somewhere but i think he had left cornell and ithaca just before i arrived so but i'm sure he he was probably mentioned by people and he was the founder of the original student group, the the student homophile organization. Well, I can't uh, I can't really uh, testify to that. And uh, as you know, uh, Gerald seems to have been a prolific founder, but I don't have any yeah. information there. 
that would have happened before I arrived in any case. But, Do you remember um, the switch in the name of the organization from the homophile organization to um, making the decision to um, go by the name Cornell Gay Liberation Front? Uh, no, I don't. But it would certainly have been influenced yeah. by the uh, you know the a- emerging anti-war movement and the anti-racism movement. I, I mean, obviously, the word "front" is borrowed from other movements that had already emerged at that time. So. Mm-hmm. What kind of uh, other political activism were you involved, or was it just uh, gay liberation specific? Well, initially, I was just involved in uh, the gay organization, but of course, there was this whole bubbling political milieu around it, arising out of the women's movement and uh, uh, the anti-racism movement and the anti-war movement. All of that was happening at more or less the same time. Nevertheless, as I recall, the the gay issues were not really on the radar of the anti-war people, uh, particularly until very much later in my time there, Uh, partly because I guess that was true in general in in, in American society at that time, because the uh, the whole gay thing was just emerging at the end of the 60s, whereas the war had been going on since the middle of the 60s and was finally starting to come home to people. So, so, so yeah, so I was, I was on the uh, edges of things. I never got involved in any of the other organizations, though, partly out of caution because I was a foreigner, um, mm-hmm. uh, but partly c- because um, none of the people that I knew really were invited. I didn't know anybody, for example, who was a member of S- a student Democratic, Students for a Democratic Society, which became the big focus for political protest on the campus. So mm-hmm. I, I did. I did join in some of the later uh, the occupations of buildings and so forth. But of course, the thousands of people uh, did, and the university is functioning at that point. So, so Jeff, I know there's a mm-hmm. few uh, sort of reference points that you want to get into, but I also want to like ask Ken about. Uh, I don't know if this is a particular. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sex Information for Cornell Students is a Mm -hmm. booklet that was printed in 1972. And in in some ways, it's, well, first of all, it's a big difference in the language Mm -hmm. uh, that that is used in it, that um, it's a little bit more, call it prolific, a little bit more uh, stronger from the activist and a bit more in your face, necessarily so. Um, on page 62 of this particular document, you know, the title is homosexuality. And, uh, this is actually written by you and, and Jane Gallup, members of the GLF, the gay liberation front. What, what strikes me that I, I just don't know if you'd see this in, in literature anywhere today. So, so boldly mm-hmm. is one of the paragraphs. First, you should realize that there is nothing wrong with being gay, all caps, right. <laughs> keep telling yourself that until it sinks in. Right. Um, I just, <laughs> that reminds me of Queer Nation when I was part of that a little bit in, in, in Ottawa in the, the early 90s, I think. But um, I wonder if you could maybe speak to some of the that languaging and maybe that sort of power in the languaging that you then brought into like body politic later on. Right. Well, you have to realize, you know, the, who, who we were speaking to there, they're largely people who had grown up in isolation with some knowledge of themselves, maybe a lot, maybe not very much. 
at that point, they knew that they were homosexual or lesbian or gay or homophile or uh, whatever. But we needed people to, uh, to, to come together on that basis to affect change. We needed to build a constituency, right? And you weren't going to build a constituency out of, of people who did not feel very good about themselves and weren't even mm-hmm. sure that they were yeah. right to think that they deserve better, right? So that's why, you know, the early movement, many of the slogans have a quasi-therapeutic effect, uh, sound to them, like gay is good and we are everywhere. It's mm-hmm. all reassurance, right? <clears throat> uh, and uh, that was an important thing at that time because you can't have politics of any kind without a constituency. You need bodies. You need an army. Mm-hmm. And so we needed to get those, get those recruits from somewhere, right? Uh, that's probably partly why the language is that way. It's tended to be startling. Maybe people think, what? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but yeah, it's, you, you have to you know, let, a, let a firecracker off to, try, to attract attention. You know? There is something I would like to add about that as has come back to me. I remember re- attending a great anti-war rally in uh, Washington towards the end of my time mm-hmm. at, uh, at Cornell. And the keynote speaker was a guy named I.F. Stone, who was a famous anti-war journalist who had pieced together an indictment of the American uh, effort in Vietnam out of just out of newspaper clippings, little bits of information he'd been able to spot and ferret out, because most of it was a secret, of course. But he stood in front of this great mass of probably half a million people who to whom he was a great hero, and he said, well... This may be therapeutic, but is it politics? And mm. that has really stuck with me uh, through all of these years to ask that about everything. Is this mainly about making yourself feel good or is it about making some sort of change happen? Now, of course, they can be the same thing, right? But it's easy to fall into thinking you're doing something important just to, you know, they start making people feel better about themselves. Mind you, you need to do that to get them to do anything else. But anyway, so I thought that was a very wise uh, and incisive observation. That's interesting. I think I see that. I was mentioning, I'm reading Tim McCaskill's book, uh, Queer Progress. Yeah. Although he doesn't say what you just said, that I guess attitude or approach often shows up in some of the letters to the body politic when there were divisive situations. Um, and, you know, sometimes the body politic was on defense mode. Sometimes they were on offense mode, but whatever the case was, there was sometimes this trying to draw the line in the stand between, you know, are you just trying to feel good or is this actually in a sense activism? Yeah. Like, are you speaking to activism or are you actually trying to make a change and I wonder if some of the tension yeah. in, in activism in general is um, sometimes fighting so hard for the cause that you almost forget the humanity in a moment. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I think sometimes being an activist is like being a surgeon. You can't be squeamish, mm-hmm. right? Or you're not serving your patient well. <laughs> you know, uh, a member of the collective, Walter Blumenthal, was said to me once, you know, because we were arguing over whether we should publish a particular case of injustice involving a prisoner he said well you know gay liberation is about the lawn we can't look after every blade of grass (laughs) again 
it's it can be sound harsh but it is completely true and again it's another thing that someone said that's always you know stuck with me and of course you have to you have to mix your social engineering side of you and your your human social side as well but i think the trick there is not to let them get in each other's way right yeah interesting mm. Jeffrey, do you want to cycle back to some? Yeah, so I'm just thinking in terms of um, you know Darren's question about the the language that you used in the, in this manual mm-hmm. and the importance of building a constituency of gay people uh, as gay students at Cornell. How are you finding each other? Right? How are how are people? finding out about meetings or house parties or other places to to socialize like how how was that information being disseminated right well you may this may be a little before your time but people used to be very dependent on telephone trees and networks uh, to communicate community information and that's how i particularly like house parties and so on would get around because there'd be no place you could post that information and count on any significant number of important people to you uh, reading it. And I'm quite sure we wouldn't have been allowed to put up posters in the Maury's, which would have been the obvious uh, place to do that. So it was mainly because it was, a very, first of all, it was a small group of people. Uh, that's an important point to remember. Uh, and there were many close relationships and friendships and, of course, animosities in that group. So I don't think it would, it, we would have used mainly uh, telephones to pass information around or actual in-person uh, communication. Right? That's, I mean, that's different from leafleting strangers, of course. But, uh, since there was no Internet and there, were, <laughs> you know, there were no, weren't even any portable phones, you, well, you sat at a desk and you called people, right? So basically, like, if you wanted to go to a Cornell GLF meeting to find out about that, you had to know someone else who was in the group or connected to the group that would tell you about that? Uh, well, I just, you saying that does remind me there. I, I seem to recall there was a bulletin board at Willard Strait Hall. Uh, it was mainly preoccupied with people finding rides out of, <laughs> it's, a, it's so typical, but the main, its main function was help people get out for the weekend, right? Uh, but I'm sure organizations put up uh, posters about their meetings there, and I'm quite sure we would have, been, would have done that for sure, yes. We may have, I mean, obviously we tried it, we would have wanted to get stories into the student newspaper, the Cornell Sun and so forth, too, and so but it was that was always a, you know before we had the, our current technology, it was always a big challenge. It was always much more labor intensive to bring people together for any purpose. And do you ever remember? Were there any instances of um, people tearing your flyers down or uh, anything of that sort, or did people basically you know let them be? I don't remember any specific instances, but I, I mean. Uh, I'm pretty sure that would have happened, particularly initially. But I can't say that it was a big issue that I recall. So, and aside from right, the student meetings that were happening on campus, mm-hmm. we've mentioned a couple of times um, the bar called Maury's, right. which was in College Town. So it's right. a section of Ithaca. There was a high you know, student population, businesses that are catering to, um, to students. Can you... Do you tell us a little bit more about what 
you remember about that. My understanding is that, you know, this bar did not open as a gay bar, but students wanted somewhere to socialize. So people just started kind of going there and essentially trying to turn it into a gay space. Right. Well, this is a preface to that. I I mentioned something I really, we haven't touched on. It was important. There were two different populations in the the gay community, right? There were the uh, students, but there were also the people who were called townies. And I don't know whether they still use that dismissive term. Uh, The people, local people who had grown up in Ithaca, uh, who are also part of that group. And, of course, there was Ithaca College, although I don't recall it was ever an important uh, uh, source of for us. I think that's a degree mill for the wealthy. Um, Ithaca. Uh, so uh, as for Maury's itself, I don't have much memory of it, except it was very dark <laughs> in, inside. Um, and I'd, uh, I have an image in my brain of it as having a, a fairly big windows on the front, but you couldn't really see in very well because of the lighting. Uh, I don't recall ever being inside the place myself, although I'm sure I must have. Um, am I correct in thinking that the, the bar was on the right when you went in, the service area, or do you, do you know that, Jeffrey? I don't know. Um, well, I, what I do know is that, so the address of the bar was um, 409 Eddy Street, okay. and that that building is still there, but I'm not sure, you know, I haven't been in, in the building. I'm not sure what the layout um, right. was when right. it was functioning as Maury's. Right, yeah. But uh, it's unfortunate, but I don't really have much, although I know it was important to uh, the community, I do not have much recollection of being there that often. And I may not have been. I was probably in my early puritanical phase where I thought that we should try to replace those institutions rather than engage them, right? Uh, uh, we did have that idea, some of us, that where our job was to erase everything and start over again. Right? No. I mean, the, so when the you say that... Oh, Darren, go ahead. Sorry, do you, do you mean like erase the bars and start over? Yeah, yeah. Well, ignore them, ignore them into existence. We wanted to create a new world, right? And uh, mm-hmm. we weren't so good at seeing you had to get the lumber from somewhere. That, <laughs> that, <laughs> that took a while. This idealize this idealism without an actual. Uh, foundation to support the plan so to speak well i mean that's it's a continuing thread throughout most uh, at least my experience gay activism and probably activism in general even right down to the early days of the body politic and right up to the bath rage you know we always felt we were separate from the people we were talking to and we were aware of that and we didn't like that so much but we didn't know how to fix it Partly because if we came from our, you know, our class backgrounds were different quite often from the people that we were attempting to engage and so forth. Uh, so that way, as you may, well, there was often, it was often a discussion in the collective, like how can we stop seeming so academic and, uh, mm. and la-di-da, right? Well, for some of us anyway, others were quite happy to have it that way. Um, so, and I think that's, you know, that remains right down to the present day, a problem with progressive politics, this tendency to, Look upon your constituents as people different from yourself, right? And in really bad cases, it leads to this sort of the, the saved and the damned kind of psychology that's very inward looking. But I'm straying very far from the, <laughs> the point here. But I think that's why I may not know much about Maury's, remember much about Maury's. I may have decided 
to not to go there that often, but to stick to our own center and so forth. Well, and, I'm sorry, I would just interject before you head off to your next point there, Jeffrey, sorry, is, <laughs> is connected to this, I think, is kind of what form of counterculture were you participating in that time from dropping acid to, you know, <laughs> you know what, whatever it was at that time that would have put you into that sort of mindset of let's, you know, recreate the world from scratch. Right. Well, I'm just trying to figure out what I can say here that might not land me in a concentration camp in about 20 years. <laughs> um, before I arrived at Cornell, I was uh, my final year or so at the U of T, I was part of a fairly large group of LSD users. And uh, we used to gather in designated rooms on the weekend and uh, and do what was called dropping acid. And we would actually spend most of the two days in that particular location. Um, so uh, uh, there was that. And I was never much into um, uh, marijuana for some reason. I liked, I liked the, uh, the, the psych psychotropic drugs. They were very interesting. So the, what did, but okay, so coming then to Cornell... <laughs> I did not. I did not continue that. <clears throat> uh, I do remember. I do remember one. I must have been smoking at that time because I do remember my parents came and picked me up and drove me home one year for uh, at the end of the semester. And I foolishly, I don't know what I thought, brought along a bag of seeds. To uh, I guess I was thinking of planting them when I got home, so there'd be something there to use. Uh, but anyway, as we were coming to the border check. I went to check on, make sure the bag was secure, and I spilled the seeds all over the bottom of the car, the back seat. <laughs> so the last hundred yards, we gradually moved up to our meeting with the uh, Canada Customs person. I was frantically trying to scoop these seeds back into the, oh into the bag, also without attracting my parents' notice, who were sitting right in the two front seats, right? So, so I finally just decided to brazen it out and... And got away with it. So, but uh, I so I must have been using I must have been uh, using marijuana, I guess, in uh, at Cornell for for some period of time. But that's all I, that was all I can think of. Though I think what part of it was the supply of LSD uh, degenerated uh, quite a bit in the late uh, in the uh, sorry the early seventies. You couldn't be sure what it was that was on that bit of blotter mm. anymore. <laughs> I was going to say um, uh, one of the the things I, I sent you was an interview that um, you had done with the Cornell Daily Sun, yes. which is a student newspaper. Right. And um, you talked about this difference between uh, the gay community focusing their uh, energy on educating the public versus helping each other. Right. And that seems to connect um, to what you're saying about Maury's and maybe why you didn't spend that much time right. there that like, here's a, a space where it's kind of our space, but we're not really welcome. Right. Um, so maybe we should concentrate on instead, right. Our own spaces versus a space that's only partially our own. I think the key, the key issue there is control, right. Who establishes yeah. what, yeah. what you can do, what you can't do, what you can say, what you can't say. And of course, that's entirely out of your 
hands on private premises. And often, of course, with gay bars everywhere, the rules could change without you even noticing it yeah. until you contravene them, right? So, yes, that would be an important point. Uh, I will come back to the issue, though, because it's uh, always been a big one for me, is you, you can't lead without followers. So, yeah. And so, Ken, you said... Um... You you did participate in the demonstration that happened um, with the students against Maurice Barr, or you weren't part of that? I rem- I do. Re- I have a memory of being <laughs> a crowd of maybe like a hundred people or something like that, and I do re- have a recollection of uh, Maury coming out to speak. I think he's sort of a was he not a bald or is, uh, do you know what he looked like? Because I have a recollection of a guy who was sort of slightly bald. And maybe with with glasses, but that's all I rem- the only thing yeah. comes to mind when I in connection with his yeah. name. I don't know. I don't, I don't think I haven't seen a, a picture oh, okay. of him okay. come up. So, <laughs> so that's a, I, I do do recall that. Well, it may be just auto suggestion, right? Um, uh, but not any. I don't recall anything about organizing the demonstration or mm-hmm. uh, the actual character of the confrontation. Yeah, and my. Um, understanding is you know essentially he opened this bar and then was welcoming to gay students at at first and then um becomes hostile towards that and that there were members of the cornell glf who had been right ejected from the bar by um maury for right being um too gay and then um, the students, so this would have been October 15th of 1970, then the students, and, and I think along um, with residents of Ithaca as well, kind of organized this um, demonstration mm-hmm. against the bar to right. kind of get him to change his policy. And um, one of the other things I found is uh, in um, the Cornell GLF newsletter, um, members of the organization actually writing to the state liquor authority uh, and saying, right. like, you know, hey, right, this did, did, were you involved in, in in that at all? Trying to contact the the state liquor authority and say, like, hey, this is what what this guy is doing. I don't recall that I was. That probably would okay. have because I wasn't a citizen and a voter. Um, one thing you might want to follow up. I have a, a sort of a filament of a memory there that. One of his difficulties was that he was a member of the local Democratic Party apparatus. Yes, that, yeah. yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah I I um, I came across uh, I think in some of the GLF newsletters that the issues started when um, he was thinking of running for political office. Oh, right? right. So, like, I'm I'm happy to take the gay students money if they want to drink at my bar and hang out here. Um, but then right. If that's going to hurt me politically, right. Then that's not, not okay right. anymore. Yeah. And, um, another thing that he was doing is like, technically, um, according to the state liquor authority, um, regulations at the time, he couldn't just kick someone out for being gay. Um, but bar owners could, um, kick people out for being intoxicated. Right. And, uh, so, and that he was essentially right. Just kicking the gay students out and saying, Oh, you seem intoxicated. You need to, to get out of here. So kind of exploiting that, uh, that loophole in the, in the regulations to kick gay people out of, 
out of his space. Right. I know he probably used it uh, on many occasions, not just for for gay people. So. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, so it's unfortunate that that's not much of a big subject in my. It's <laughs> Well, Ken, one of the the other things that you were involved in is um, helping to establish a gay people center um, in Ithaca. And can you tell us a bit more about that? So the um, the student organization, right, you were originally um, meeting on the campus at Willard Street right. Hall, which right. is the, the student union. Um, why establish your own gay people center why just not keep meeting on the campus oh well i think there will be two uh two important considerations there are a lot of people we would have assumed or would have known did not want to be seen coming and going mm-hmm. from the uh our office in willard Strait. and of course it was a high density area of traffic and so forth uh the second thing of course is the issue of the the non-students and and perhaps not feeling on home territory uh, in the student union building. But as I recall, and when, when this was solved by the getting off of the campus, but also I believe the office we had off campus, it was in a building, right? And so the fact that you went in the doors of that building didn't say anything about where you were going in the, the building. Okay. Right? So I think that was probably in a consideration as well. Mm-hmm. I do recall that uh, the university was, it was a university owned building, was it not? Because they, they were the ones who provided the space uh, for us, very grudgingly, I might add, as I recall. We even had, uh, we didn't, do, they, there was no furniture at all in the place. We built our own furniture, believe it or not. One of the members built these suspiciously low slung so- sofas with no backs, which immediately drew suspicions from, from uh, some janitorial staff, I believe. Uh, so it was just all it was was just an unused empty space. We had to make mm-hmm. create the whole thing ourselves. This so that there was no like sign that said "Gay People oh, Center." You had to kind of be in the know. Did we have a sign on the door? I can't believe we didn't because of our politics. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm sure the problem, but maybe not on the outside of the building though. But I don't know what house. Okay. I can't remember how signage was for the building. Right? Whether there was, uh, yeah a display of everyone who was in there or not. Yeah. And unfortunately I think that, um, that building um, where the first gay people center was located, it moves to a different location later, but um, I don't think that building is there anymore. I think they Uh, knocked it down and it's a bank now. Right. Well, very Toronto experience. (laughs) Well, that's it's too bad because it would be nice to have a plaque there now to, to tell people these things. And, uh, yeah, yeah. You could still have one on the sidewalk, you know, somewhere. But anyway. So what were um, some of the the things that, that you were doing at the center? Um, what were some of the you know, services or activities that the Gay People Center was was offering? Well, of course, we had, we had social events that allowed us to organize them the way we wanted to. Uh, and I believe we were allowed to serve liquor even in those uh, premises. Okay. Uh, I'm not sure, but I, it being uh, New York State, I think that would have been allowed. Uh, but importantly for me, that was where we put together the newsletter. Um, okay. So, uh, and, of course, our meetings were, were held 
there. And it doesn't, you know, by the way, you know, the meetings, actual core of the organization was never more than about, I would say, 12 or 15 people. It was, but I guess that's probably mm-hmm. true of organizations, except in times of high uh, political unrest and, and activism. So the, I remember sitting on those low benches, in fact, or sitting around the outside of the room to con, conduct the meetings. And I'd, I remember one meeting in particular, I made myself very unpopular because I became impatient with the inability of people to come to order. Uh, and so mm-hmm. talking endlessly, and I finally raised my voice in order to uh, get the meeting going. And it was apparently quite shocking when <laughs> I just had reactions. But I do remember that. So I said, oh, no, I won't do that mm-hmm. again. <laughs> what was the, the composition um, between Cornell students, uh-huh. um, quote-unquote townies from Ithaca, um, men and women? Right. Well, I can only go by the people that I can remember knowing. And as far as students versus the, the town population, I think I would put that at about two to one. Uh, there's two mm-hmm. Cornelians for every Ithacan. Uh, men to uh, women to men, I'd say maybe a quarter of the mm-hmm. students uh, or members were women. They were all, but uh, interesting, they were some of the more memorable members. Uh, I, I, I can recall right off right when we began talking, uh, the names of the three people I remember immediately are all of the women members of the organization because they all went on to do distinctive things, I believe. So, uh, so yeah, I, I mean, it wasn't, an, it wasn't an uncomfortable mix at all. I don't think it ever came up as an issue, but maybe that's because the mm-hmm. people from the town didn't feel comfortable raising it. I don't know. Mm. Any students of color? Was it mostly white students at that time? Uh, oh, no. I think they were, it was almost entirely uh, white. Uh, okay. for, and that would have been true. Uh, I mean, I don't know how much you know about uh, Cornell in the 1960s and 70s, but it had a very small uh, uh, group of black students and mm-hmm. uh, a lot of the unrest on the campus grew out of the friction between them and the administration uh, leading of course to the armed occupation of the student unions uh, yeah. uh, like, that's another one of my it's funny you know almost none of my memories of Cornell have to do with its educational function um, they all had to do with <laughs> things that happened uh, quite Beside, <laughs> beside the fact, uh, I remember walking by Bullard uh, uh, Street Hall a morning after it had been occupied and seeing the guns sticking out of the windows, and that has always mm-hmm. uh, stuck with me. That image. And were you? And so that would have been spring of nineteen sixty nine. Uh, I guess I don't remember I exactly when that was, but certainly early on, yes. So um, did the the Cornell GLF, in terms of the the Black Student Organization occupying Willard Strait, were you seeing that as, you know, at all in connection to some of the work that um, the GLF was doing and, you know, um, your political struggles as gay students, or um, did you see it as something separate? Oh, well, I'm sure some of us would have thought, you know, Gosh, we could do that. <laughs> um, no, no, I mean, you can tell by the language of the gay movement in its beginning how it borrowed extensively from the black movement, the women's movement, yeah. right? uh, and some international uh, movements for national liberation. Uh, 
So that's why it was a rupture from the earlier uh, homophile movement in the United States in particular, which was uh, uh, used a different language entirely in different terms and had a different understanding of its what it was for, right? The Mattachine Society. So yeah. it was held in considerably and perhaps now unjustified contempt by the the, the GLF. But that was true everywhere. Yeah. When I came back to Toronto, there was already a split between uh, the Gay Activists uh, Alliance and the uh, Gay Activists Toward Equality. That's what Gay Act Toward Equality and the Community Homophile Association, right? Yeah. So, so that was a pretty uh, pretty common everywhere. So yes, yeah, so yes, we certainly would have inspired by these movements, and I have no doubt mm. that uh, you know we were, of course, we were just as individuals at the university as well swept up because you know many of the you have to understand that many of the members of the student members in particular of uh, of the organization would also have been uh, open to being arbitrarily drafted and sent away to Vietnam. Mm. That was the mm. the really big. Thing that horrible thing they did everywhere. They had a lottery and pulled birthday numbers out of a of a drum, and if your birthday came up, that was it. You know, you were yeah, yeah. So you can imagine the uh, kind of psychology uh, that would have created. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, so and I, I'm sure members of ICE, I became involved, as I said, on the fringes of the the larger uh, movement, and I thought it was very educational. I did learn things. <laughs> from that that I found useful uh, later on, particularly the way masses of people change their minds almost suddenly and apparently yeah. magically. Uh, I got, there's a lot to think about in all the things that I saw happening. Right. Yeah. I remember, because um, when I first arrived there, Students for a Democratic Society was a small, very small fraction. The student body was 13,000 people, I believe. And mm-hmm. the SDS had about 200 members. Okay. Uh, and they were isolated from the student body very much as activists that I consorted with later in Toronto were isolated from the Toronto gay community. Uh, but this strange thing happened that uh, because of various crises, including the occupation of uh, Willard Strait, the president of the university, I think his name was Perkins, called a convocation. Mm-hmm of the students. And so people dutifully trooped off the convocation. I was not among them. Uh, And he spoke to them. But I could tell afterwards, as they came away from the place where they'd heard him speaking, that there was this vast dissatisfaction and disappointment in the air. And in fact, he had just lectured them on the values of a liberal education, totally Mm -hmm. irrelevant to the situation. Mm -hmm. And last night, that night, I went home and I was sitting in my room listening to the campus radio and they started reporting that SDS had seized the military uh, building there. Is it called Olin? No, that's the library. I forgot the name of it. And occupied it. And then they started reporting that people had um, uh, started to join them. And so I'm listening to this and all through the night and, and by morning, there were thousands of people had basically gone from supporting the administration to supporting students for democratic society. Mm. And so I thought, I spent a lot of time thinking about, you know, how does, how does this happen? And I, for, I'm a very lucky guy because I've seen this twice right in front of my eyes. Because the second time was the Toronto bathhouse raids where completely passive politically uninvolved population overnight turned into this <laughs> raging army of activists. Right? So, it's also why it's connected to why I'm in journalism or why I was in journalism. How do I make that happen? It was the thing that was always on my mind. Yeah. 
Were you at all involved with the um, the gay counseling line that the Gay People Center? No, was? I don't believe so. That's not my thing. Okay. Okay. Because I see, I asked this because um, I am you know, just wondering. <laughs> I'm the wrong person if they're yeah. just someone looking for sympathy okay. for their problems, right? <laughs> I was just wondering, in, you know, in terms of um, students that were actually out and involved yeah. in the organization versus right, right um, students who might have been there that have been that would have been you know closeted but right. might have been um, calling for right. for help or connection um, in in that way, right? right? That kind of discrepancy about like, right, who is actually there versus right. um, who is actually visible. Right. Yeah. Well, I don't recall. Uh, I don't, I'm pretty sure I would not have been involved because of the, mm-hmm. of all for personality reasons. Right? Probably no one would have let me on the line to talk to anyone <laughs> in their right mind anyway. <laughs> Do we want to start uh, drawing parallels into, uh, into Canada and, yeah, that's a good yeah. idea. Sure. Right. So thinking can, you know, all that you saw witnessed and mm-hmm. especially just what you were talking about here, um, seeing how an entire crowd of people, an entire mindset of a mass of people can literally change overnight. How did your experiences then at Cornell influence um, your work, your, your, your thought process, the founding of the body politic and, you know, everything that sort of followed after that, maybe start with the body politic, however you wish to uh, present this. Well, I would like to clarify there. I, I, it was already shouting away by the time I returned to Toronto. It had been founded uh, about 18 Mm. months prior to my uh, return uh, to the city. And I, I can remember my first reading of that because it was so humiliating. Uh, I'd been sent away to write a review of a book, Carla J. and somebody else's anthology, okay. an American book. And I was so naive at that time, still so much the academic. I went through, my review was like thousands of words long and tried to address every single element in the anthology. And of course, I read this out loud and I could see Ed Jackson there sitting there trying not to scream at me as I trudged my way through this article because we used to read them out loud at the collective meetings. So I remember that for sure. Uh, at the time, uh, it was uh, it had not become the highly defined project that it later be, became. It was, there were a lot of different agendas at work. In fact, I talked about this subject, I think, to the UST students a couple of years ago, the different uh, groups of people within the collective. Uh, and for me, because I'd gotten involved in the newsletter when I'd been in Cornell, I, that's probably the reason I gravitated to the body politic because I, uh, for various reasons, uh, that's how I, how, I, how I wanted to affect the world is through uh, journalism and advocacy and speaking to unseen audiences. That's the great thing about publishing, right? It takes you out of your personal circle to a host of strangers. And so I got some experience with that, with the, uh, the newsletter at, uh, at uh, Cornell. And then when I came back to Toronto, the, the, everything was just bubbling, you know. The city I had left had hardly, didn't have a particle of gay activism in it. And I returned four years later, and it was everywhere. Right? So there was a vast change that occurred that I felt I had missed the bus, first of all, because I was away in another country when all of this happened. But it did give me the advantage of not having any baggage uh, mm-hmm. at that point. 
Uh, and so uh, naturally I was drawn to the body politic because I'd already become interested in the whole question of how do you move people to political action through writing. Uh, and it, of course, had dubbed itself a gay liberation journal. And it was a group of people who were very much like myself, uh, uh, university educated, uh, largely male at that city at that time, largely entirely white. Um, and, uh, yeah, so it seemed like a natural place for me to, 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 uh, start. What year was that exactly? Oh, gosh, I remember, because it's always in my mind, it was my call, my flight from Ithaca, like Joseph and Mary's flight from Egypt. Um, uh, it was February, February of 1973, following my breakup with my uh, boyfriend, Joe Savego. So, oh, oh, also, he was an uh, important person in the life of the organization, went on to be a well-known writer, but died, unfortunately, too young. Yeah. Mm-hmm. did. You know, it's funny, most of the people that I knew, the men that I knew uh, at Cordell, I have a great fear that most of them are, are, have passed away. But I have, I've been able to check, take, track down a few of them, so I know that's the case for some. Yeah. All right, so we we're coming back to Toronto. So yeah, that's what, mainly what I brought back with me there was my journalistic experience. But also... Because I was involved on the edges of the anti-war movement, and, uh, to say that in these vast demonstrations, that was an important formative experience for me too, uh, because I had not had the experience of being in a large, organized, angry crowd with a mission. And so I saw how this, how this came to be, how you caused demonstrations to happen, how you controlled them, what the outco- outcomes were, were like, and so forth. So, so I learned about that. I learned about organizing uh, and also about uh, propagandizing, yeah. I think. And of course, as I've mentioned, I also had a chance to observe what actually happens to people when their worldview no longer makes sense to them, that suddenly they're available uh, to think something new. Yeah. There's something you said there um, about organizing, and I, I wonder if that's more in the writing or both on the ground, um, mm-hmm. you know, just thinking back to uh, the number of times there was like, you know, the bathhouse raids and then the uh, sudden protests that happened, but then again, the police raiding again, and then another protest. And the, there was quite a few years where you know, people were coming together very quickly right. and usually being on Young Street. Right. Um, and then in to McCaskill's book, there was one example where uh, the, the crowd of queers just, just got too upset and were basically starting to chase after the queer bashers right. that were hanging out. Oh, I was one and, of them. <laughs> yeah, but but the meeting it's afterwards, just, it's they actually were just up the street from here. The point that yeah. happened. You know. But so, I fa- what I found so interesting is, um, it, it. I don't know if it was Tim or somebody else that at a follow up meeting they said because the marshals lost control and the marshals right. got involved in fighting back, right. and they said something along the lines of no matter what your politics are, you are there to sort of control the event so that we can at least come out to the other side without being the bad group. Right. And it was as, as tough as that is, Mm -hmm. there's something to be said for that kind of management and leadership 
of the people that are going to somehow uh, bring leadership to a group of people to stand up for their rights, but not to lose it so much mm -hmm. that there could be some sort of a devastating or very negative result. Right. Well, of course, uh, you know, uh, again, that's Tim's what highly disciplined approach to politics coming out, which I share, but there's some yeah. times when there's nothing you can do. And that was one of those times, you know, it's funny you're yeah. talking about that because I was one of those marshals yeah. and I remember forming up our line across church street, facing the police officers with their arms linked mm -hmm. uh, and they moved forward towards us sort of banging their shields and waving their batons and attacked us. And we started to fall back and the line dissolved. There's nothing, I mean, there's nothing we could do because mm -hmm. at the same time we were attacked from behind. And the fact I, well, not to make a big deal of it, but I, I, I hear I was a marshal. Suddenly my arms were no longer linked. I turned around, see what was happening. It was hit by a police car, right? So I, uh, I appreciate Tim's, uh, Tim's purity <laughs> there, but he emerged from that with a cracked skull. So I'm sure he would admit admit that you know you can you do not always have 100 percent control of the situation. So, and sometimes the crowd knows better than you do. <laughs> so, but, sorry, was that a, was that germane to anything? I've forgotten whether I wandered off down an alleyway there. Or no, I was just sort of interested in like, I'm, I'm really glad you brought that up that you were one of the marshals. And I do remember in, in the, uh, in the telling of that story that you were hit by a police car mm -hmm. and that he had been injured as well. And, you know, there are situations we're seeing uh, across the globe where, you know, this aspect of peaceful protest only goes so far when the people who are holding the power, um, are not giving way. And, you know, it, it's just, to me, I mean, I know this police brutality, but looking back, oh, it's appalling the, the way, you know, Toronto police, Canadian police handle themselves and the problems we still have today. Mm -hmm. it's, it's just, it's endemic. Mm -hmm. um, but the way it was framed, um, yeah, it, it, it just seems to me that there's an aspect of how much was going on within so many different types of politics and political movements in the seventies and the eighties. Mm -hmm. And in some way, I don't know if this sounds elitist, but I think we've lost some of the intelligence of our advocacy and our reasons for doing things today. It doesn't seem like people really understand how much there is to lose right now. Right. Well, certainly there's been a big change, but that's true on the progressive in progressive politics generally. There's been a loss of understanding of what it is where we, we need to articulate what we want, what we're trying to right. achieve. It's been the sort of whole scale retreat into the self, uh, disguised as as a movement. All right, um, so, but I mean, people can only remain blind to material realities for so long. I mean, again, to come back to my point. When the Body Politic Collective was isolated for most of the first, you know, like seven or eight years of its life from the people it wanted to speak to, they looked down at us, they laughed at us, they thought we were crazy. In retrospect, though, I realized we were doing something important. We were putting down, we we're laying out this worldview and this set of ideas about what could be. And yes, they may have dismissed it all as utopianism, but they didn't forget it. 
they stored it away in some top shelf in the backs of their uh, brains somewhere. And then suddenly, when the bathhouse raids came and they dashed their conviction that there was sort of an unspoken understanding between uh, gay people and lesbians and the city and the police, they were looking for something that helped make it all sense, what they were seeing make sense again. And that's when they reached for that shelf, you know, and saw, okay, oh, they were right. This is what all of this means. Right? So you never know when that is going to happen. People are not, uh, well, not, well, of course, obviously, they're not simple machines, right? Very complicated machines. That, and you, they can look like everything is politically dead on the surface when, in fact, things are boiling away <clears throat> underneath. So, yes, we're in a bit of a doldrum right now with activism, I think. Uh, but that's because I think the people currently involved will not be the people who lead whatever happens when it happens. There's going there'll be a new layer of leadership that will be brought forth by events. I mean, uh, yes, you're right. Uh, we don't have the same kind of people now that we had then. But the real, I think the truth is those people are still around, but there's no opportunity for them to be this act in the same fashion. There's no mm-hmm. constituency for it right now. So I think, you know, those uh, potential leaders and activists are always there, but there have to be people who need a leader and know that they need a leader. Yeah. So I'm wondering, um, how does the archive that the body politic <clears throat> created um, factor into to all of this and the other work that that you were doing, like how did you see it fitting in with, so there's the publishing piece right. and then also the political activism piece. Like why did you decide to um, create, I think at first it was the the gay liberation movement mm-hmm. archives, then um, Canadian gay and lesbian archives. Right. Oh, I, well, I attribute that all <clears throat> to Jim Stakely, one of the uh, uh, American mm-hmm. members of the, Collective, because he was the one who uncovered the uh, hidden history of the gay movement in Germany, <clears throat> and it was first published in uh, in the Body Politic. And looking at that, I thought, you know, we've done all of this before. <laughs> Why didn't somebody tell us uh, we could have skipped this step? Uh, and that made me realize how important it was for us to know uh, know our own history and what we've done before. And again, I've made this point to, to the student groups I've uh, spoken to. You have to know your history so that you know what you're capable of, uh, because we forget that. You know, I, I sometimes I sit with young people, or I did when I was the head of Pink Triangle Press, and they would look at the pictures of demonstrations, and clearly they didn't see themselves in those pictures. And I would literally, I would go and get the photographs and say to them, look at these people. They're you. They're the same age as you are now. Then this is. It wasn't some group of super people, superhumans who mm-hmm. did this. There's ordinary people. Uh, so uh, the history that would have been very valuable was valuable to us to see that everything that we wanted to do had in fact been done uh, before. So that's mm-hmm. why I thought it was important to keep a record of everything that was happening to us. And fortunately for uh, history. We happen to be in the city with this almost perfect arc mm-hmm. of, of uh, political 
mystery, right? That begged mm-hmm. <laughs> to be preserved as an epic poem or something like that. Uh, so uh, that's why I thought it was, it was important. To, and I think most members of the collective felt it was important to preserve <clears throat> not just our own. Uh, it was important to uh, preserve not just our own history, but whatever other history we can find that was relevant. Mm-hmm. Had this huge mass showing people what is possible. That's what history shows us. It shows us what is possible, I think. Mm-hmm. Now, the archives are here. I wish... Um, my original idea was that it should be more outward-facing uh, than it mm-hmm. evolved because it's, it's been um, largely the work, of course, of archivists and academics and so forth and does a good job uh, for researchers and so forth. Uh, but <clears throat> I often wish that they spend more of their time on showing the collection to people because to me, that's when it finally achieves its purpose. There's mm-hmm. no point in saving it, collecting it, and preserving it if it's just going to remain in a vault uh, somewhere, it needs to be brought out and shown to people. They're doing that now, or at least they were before the pandemic with their building. Uh, but uh, there's so much more scope there, I think, to bring uh, those materials before people. Yeah. And the process of creating um, this archive, right, was is in and of itself historic and controversial because... Um, the, some of the materials that <laughs> yes. you were collecting were, right. were seized. Right. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, they had to make some compromises there. You know, they, uh, <clears throat> I do recall at one point they had to, uh, uh, for a practical reason, divest themselves of their a lot of their porn collection, for example, because the laws around that changed. And also there was a lot more scrutiny suddenly than there had been in the past. So it's unfortunate that some things um, have not been saved, but I always look at it in terms of what has been saved, what uh, not in terms of what has not uh, been saved. So, and archives, even archives, although they seem sometimes like other worldly activities, have to have to live in the real world and face the same pressures the rest of us do. So there's a question about. Um... Sort of the difference in the presentation of history as a sort of starting point in the mm-hmm. states it, for the longest time it was after Stonewall, oh. but in, in Canada the, the name of the organization became Pink Triangle Press, right. starting with right. the pink triangle that was used um, for you know gay people that went into the concentration camps in World War II. What are some of your thoughts on that differentiation in the presentation and preservation of, of history and telling the story in Canada right. versus the United States? Well, you know, I, partly that was just our, our resistance to the overwhelming American presence, of course. <laughs> uh, but it's also, again, uh, there was always this problem for me that Stonewall always seemed like a beginning when, in fact, it was a continuation and people needed to know it was a continuation. It was a rebirth. And they needed to know that because I knew it would eventually would run out of steam and they would need to think that it was possible to, to be reborn again. Right? So, so that's why, to me, it was important to have uh, that uh, lesson that, uh, that um, Stonewall was not a new thing and resistance was not a new thing. Uh, also, of course, it was very important to me, again, to have people to realize this was a, a North Atlantic European phenomenon. It wasn't just mm. us little, our little candle 
here, right? That we put us in the context of a great expanse geographically and chronologically with a fabric that we could easily attach ourselves to and make ourselves understand our own importance better. So, Darren, should we go to, to you and talk about how you ended up at uh, Pink Triangle and how <clears throat> Ken impacted you as a, as a boss and as a mentor? Sure. Um, yeah, I had been at Carleton University and had completed my first year, Carleton University in Ottawa, completed my first uh, year of my master's. And I, I think it was towards the end of my fourth year as an undergraduate student, I was applying for a scholarship to study in Germany uh, through the uh, German academic uh, service. Um, it was something like a year and a half out that you had to do the application. And again, Ken, I, you know, like no cell phones, not, everything was done by fax. It took days to get an answer back on anything. It was, it was so much labor. Um, and even though I was training in middle high German linguistics, how esoteric could that possibly be? And and with the side of feminism and 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 Latin, um, sometimes I just shake my head at myself. Right, I was really coming into my political advocacy gayness at that time, and I was part of the gay uh, organization at Carleton University. And I wanted to do something, some sort of a gay topic. And I look back at that now and I realize I was actually proposing a queer theory thesis for my master's thesis before queer theory even existed. And I had a hard time trying to find someone in Germany who I could then use. Anyway, I I got to Europe, got Mm -hmm. to Germany for the year, found out that my idea was just impossible. Um, came back very defeated after basically changing my master's thesis and then agreeing to a research essay, which meant I would have to take one more course. And, you know, long story short, in my sort of defeatedness, I remember reading in Gaze of Ottawa, the newspaper in Ottawa, that Extra was going to launch a newspaper in um, Ottawa. And I think it was just previously you had launched extra West. That's right. So I, I think I phoned Toronto and I asked, you know, how do I find out about this? And they like, you, you'll have to talk to Brandon Matheson, who was going to be the publisher. And I contacted him and I started volunteering, uh, in that office, uh, basically helping out with whatever was happening there, delivering the first batch of newspapers, renting a van, driving out to the airport, picking up the whole sled of Capital Extra magazines for distribution. Um, eventually started working there and then moved to Toronto, to the Toronto office. And then there were some big structural changes internally. And I went from working for somebody else to suddenly working for Ken. <laughs> or not working for Ken per se, but... Uh, uh, the electronic media division was div- dissolved, and then I was appointed as audio text director uh, for the cruise line telephone dating personal system that was primarily for gay men and was the, the revenue generator uh, for Pink Triangle Press at that time. So I'm waiting for who's going to jump jump in and ask yeah. the next question here. <laughs> well, what, what about how how did working with Ken, you know, impact you, and then what in what you're doing now? Oh, interesting. Okay, <laughs> it's funny. I had uh, Ken and I met for a coffee maybe about a month ago. Uh, we were just talking about this upcoming podcast and reminiscing a little bit. 
And I would have to say um, I was very green as someone in a position of management, having staff and, and very inexperienced in the sense of um, learning how to communicate or work in a, <laughs> in a team meeting when the other directors, like the, the publisher of Extra or uh, some of the other divisions or, or, or whatnot. Um, and I do recall putting my foot in mouth quite a number of times. Uh, but I think there was an aspect of PTP being very much a grassroots feel as an organization. And I don't know, Ken, if it was your background and other people's background in sort of this, you know, counterculture, very politically active, <clears throat> that even though you were very straightforward and didactic and very open with me, uh, there was no shit. Um, there was, there was one time I really screwed up and I got a good formal letter, uh, from you, but there was, there was an aspect of you just being able to, I think, look at the passion that I brought to the organization, uh, and not overlook my failings or mistakes, but try and help me to improve myself because I was so committed to the mission of PTP, which at that time, I think the short version was daring together to set love free. And my role was to try and bring in as much, you know, net profit as possible to fund all of the different things that PTP wanted to be able to do. Well, the thing I, uh, I remember, uh, uh, Darren is right about that. I always used to emphasize the people that we wanted to hire not what I called or what people called the best person for the job. I always wanted to hire the best person for the organization. And what I meant by that is I wanted someone who, A, who understood and supported the goals of the organization, understood its history, and could also grow in the organization. And that's why, you know, Darren was a bit dismissive of his background in a whole high German, but it's exactly the kind of people that I, I loved hiring, people with varied backgrounds who'd gone from one thing to another, rounded people, you know, who would bring a not just narrow technical understanding to what we were asking them to do. Right. Well, I think Jeff, you had also asked like, how does that influence some of the work that I'm doing now? Um, it's so interesting that as technology changed um, towards the last couple of years when I was working at Pink Triangle Press, was the, the internet was already there and it was starting to evolve and we were starting to see, I believe gay.com might've been one of the, the first or at least most well-known uh, internet dating sites. And then there were a few more coming out and we were seeing the demise of the telephone telephony dating services for which that was my role. And I was starting to question, you know, well, what do I want to do next? Because I'm either going to have to evolve in the organization and I don't know what we're going to be able to do, um, or I'm going to move on. And for a time I decided to go into uh, fitness and, and, and wellness and personal training. But now I feel like I've in the last, you know, five, six, seven years really come back into all that I took from my university, all that I took from that idea that was sort of a queer theory thesis, and then my experience for almost 11 years uh, at Pink Triangle Press, this, this awareness, this large body of history, these uh, relationships I've had with different people, and the, the growth that I experienced by being exposed to 
these different personalities, um, you know, many of whom are simply not with us anymore because at that time when I was with PTP, it wasn't until when, 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 when did the antivirals come out? It was like early two thousands. So, you know, mm-hmm. we, we still lost uh, a number of people that had been working with us. So. Well, I would like to say, <clears throat> talk about a bit, just a little bit about how Darren influenced me since we're on this uh, subject. Uh, first of all, I was very admiring of when he left us that he decided to set out on his own and build his business because uh, it's something I don't think I would ever be able to do because I'm finally an organization person. Uh, so that really impressed me. Uh, second thing is I learned what being neat really meant uh, <laughs> from uh, Darren. I had thought I was a neat person until I... <laughs> Uh, saw his office, um, and uh, so I've always aspired to be as neat as Darren ever since. So. <laughs> and that's had consequences for some people, but there you are. So thank you for that, Darren. <laughs> now I'm glad that Darren hasn't seen my messy office. Crazy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know. I'm looking at the background behind Darren. There, I can see like this is absolutely like. The creation of somebody who believes a thing for everything and everything in its place, right? Even the checkered <laughs> cover on the, I guess it's yeah. a bed or a sofa there. Yeah, so. yeah it's, it's very curated. <laughs> it's very curated, yes. You know, like my furniture see. is black, it's black and white over here, you know. It's, it's, <laughs> and the walls are actually filled with art on this side of the wall. You can't quite see it, but it's like <laughs> everything is very neat. And while I was adjusting the camera before you all came on, the picture back there, I had to align because I could see it wasn't parallel to the other two small pictures. <laughs> well, I also should mention the books have all been stacked pyramidically. So that, uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny, you know, I, I've spent some time since we've been online at meetings for two years now. I spent a lot of time looking at people's surroundings to see what I yeah. can uh, divine about them. So, yeah. So. yeah. It, you know, just um, listening to to both of you, it, it strikes me that, you know, in terms of pink triangle, I don't think there's quite an American equivalent for what you were doing in terms of how um, it was this collection of publishing and then you created the archives and then there was the personals division and then also making um, documentary films right. as well. And, you know, how all of those different pieces of, media and, and representation work together. Uh, and Darren, I think, you know, in terms of what, what you're doing now with the content that you create, whether you're, you know, you're writing or you're, you're podcasting, um, focusing on historical topics, right. In, in, in relation to um, and queer history, uh, how there's still kind of the pieces of all of those different things in um, in the work that you're, you're doing. And, and I also think it's really interesting to think about, right. Then in terms of, you know, the experience that you had at at Pink Triangle, and then in terms of like a mentor, how you've encouraged me in terms of the work that, um, I'm doing as a historian. Um, and then right now just happen to have the, the Cornell connection. And then Ken came into that equation so it's it's just it's fascinating to me to think about how all of this connects and that like people 
influence in ways that influence us in ways that we might not realize. Yeah. Well, it's, yeah, it's interesting how sometimes it does seem like a small world and then sometimes you feel completely disconnected from everything. But, you know, it was what four ish years ago when I launched uh, my publication, think queerly on, on medium, which then became the name for, for this podcast, but that's where you first started writing and who would know that, you know, along the line, then suddenly you would then be doing what you're doing now at Cornell. And then there would be this, this, uh, uh, connection of, of minds, so to speak. But what's important to me, and it's been said here already, and Ken, you've said it and, and Jeffrey, you've said it is doing these, having the documentation in the form of archives is one thing, but also having these conversations, these uh, these memories, getting more of the on the ground personal history and the in the moment reflections as to what does it all mean now and how can I think it was sort of the question I was asking you earlier, Ken, is, you know, where we're at now with everything that you've experienced around advocacism, advocacism, advocacy through your writing and on the ground work and standing up against like what was a very much a fascist organization, the Toronto police in the seventies and in the early eighties. Um, what's maybe one of the most important lessons from all of that, that you think is perhaps missing today or, or a bit of insight, or if, if not, that's missing, how might you advise someone who is really keen on making a difference, but it's just missing that one thing? <clears throat> well, what I, what I note, I, I touched on this earlier, what I note about uh, progressive politics today is that it's, it's obsessed with uh, image making and it's obsessed with language, the exclusion almost of the the real world it's locked inside of this bubble and <clears throat> i think it can be very comfortable to spend all of your time who be agree with you about everything but mm. it's not politics politics is about engaging the outside world in a constructive fashion in the hope of growing your yeah. bubble not building a wall around it so that's my my concern is people have to come back to how do we speak to the conservative people. How do we in the United States? How do we speak to a large segment of the population? Obviously, so alienated, they would vote for someone like like Donald Trump. I mean, these are they're human beings, right? They have reasons for why they do what they do, and yeah. it's far too easy to ascribe it to some sort of failing or birth defect or 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 evil you know uh instead of of saying well you know that's what we're dealing with so this is where we start our work well you know you do, what what i don't know if you're thinking about or mentioning is like this whole aspect of cancel culture mm -hmm. um where also people are taking the meanings of words to be violent right and I mean, it, it, this drives me absolutely crazy because you can't actually then have a meaningful discussion if if someone says, well, that word triggers me and you're being violent against me. And mm -hmm. we shouldn't necessarily go down that road here. But I think that's a limit. That's a huge limitation in being able to have this two sided dialogue right. uh, to be able to feel contention, but to still have a conversation about it. Right. And what is, it isn't is about me, me, me. I might add. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. 
Well, again, they would come back to. I mean, that's. I think that's because the uh, the left has been infected by the you know the consumerist culture of capitalism, and uh, people are highly discouraged from thinking of themselves as other than individual isolated units in a collection of individually isolated units. The the notion of society and of, of communities has been severely damaged in the last 30 or 40 years. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, the other thing, of course, is the flight from the material world. Um, again, a kind of Canadian example, it always drives me crazy, this business about land acknowledgements as, as just as they are. I don't know whether you're familiar with these, Jeffrey, or not. Okay. But I sort of asked myself, if I were a member of a First Nation, which would I rather have, a land acknowledgement or clean drinking water? Yeah. But the thing is, the land acknowledgement doesn't cost anyone anything, right? It's cheap, and it's theatrical, and it leaves everything unchanged. Right. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I think it goes back to the point that you made earlier about, right, is this politics or is it, um, therapy. Is it just about something yep, that's making us feel good? <laughs> or in this case, is it is it marketing or is it politics, right? So, right. Yeah. But you know, okay. I'm you know, I feel confident that some something will finally shake people out of this this world of isolated individuals. It's interesting. You know, I, someone that I was emailing is the other day <clears throat> asked me whether I wasn't feeling very discouraged by everything that was happening with the pandemic and uh, you know the emergence of crypto fascist movements everywhere. But I thought you know one thing that's we don't really pay attention to and that's largely missed i believe the pandemic has occasioned the first time in the history of the human race when the majority of the global human population is engaged in a single project together mm-hmm. you know very you know haltingly and we a lot of mistakes have been made and it's been used for all sorts of nefarious purposes still it's an impressive thing uh, to me to contrast this packet, this uh, pandemic, to what would have happened or what did happen, you know, a hundred years ago or five hundred years ago, where people didn't even know the rest of humanity existed. So there's this real, I think, there's yeah. a real incipient change of consciousness there that will have an effect on things in the longer term. So that's why I don't feel totally discouraged <laughs> about that. About that. <laughs> I almost think that's probably the best place to stop because <laughs> we ended on a, I wouldn't quite say a high note, but <laughs> on, a, on a forward looking with, you know, hope note. <laughs> and, be, and before the next variant arrives. Yeah. <laughs> the Omni Delta or something. Yeah. The yeah. next letter is pi. <laughs> <laughs> Is there anything else, Jeffrey, or do you feel we've uh, covered all bases? I think that's a great place to end. Wonderful. Well, Jeffrey Yovanone, Ken Popert, thank you so much, the both of you, for being here. We, I really appreciate your your thoughtful comments and uh, the time you spent with me here today. Also, I, will, I would like to just express a small amount of gratitude to Jeffrey for his project because he's studying... Uh, you know, an area of history that uh, often gets neglected, the story outside of the great metropolitan centers and back where the majority of people still live. And there's a lot of valuable stuff 
uh, lying there waiting to be gleaned and learned from. So I'm happy that you're doing this. And thank you, Ken, for you know doing the work that that you did. Uh, so then, right, blazing a, a path for others, <laughs> myself to follow. And I always think it's it's just so much fun when I get to read about someone right. in a historical context, and then I actually get to to talk to you. That's always um, uh, the best thing to me. Well, you're you're welcome to the future then. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again. <laughs>